1 Timothy chapter 3 this morning. 1 Timothy chapter 3. Uh, we are doing nominations for new leaders in our church beginning this week. And so I wanted to pause and, and preach on that because it's been five years since we've had nominations because we were going to do that in 2020. And the pandemic ruined every expectation we've had. Uh, so here we are in 2022. And uh, I'm excited to, to talk about it this morning and help us to think about leadership in the church. And so if you want to look at 1 Timothy chapter 3 with me, we're going to look at the first 13 verses. And then once we get into the text, we'll reference the last few verses. Uh, but that's what I want to read to get us started. Hear the reading of God's word. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, or better translated, the women, likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Amen. Amen. I want to tag our text today, gospel leadership, gospel leadership. Let's pray before we begin. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you are the living word as we sang, that you came from heaven to earth to seek us out. The reason we're able to sing today, the reason we're able to celebrate in the midst of suffering, the reason we're able to claim victory over sin, even though victory is still present in us, is because you are the God who came for us. And so we're grateful for that. We're grateful that you speak to us and may you speak to us today in your word. Help us to love you well and to love the church well. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. A man by the name of Lawrence Taylor changed the game of football forever. Lawrence Taylor, you may not be familiar with his name if, if you're not a football fan, but it was Monday Night Football, 1985. That's a long time ago. 1985, Monday Night Football, Lawrence Taylor is playing against the star quarterback, Joe Theismann. And Lawrence Taylor, on defense, linebacker, coming in 
uh, on the play, and, and he's running towards the quarterback fast. No one's getting him. No one's, no one's keeping up with him. He's coming in hot as he's coming in on his left side towards the quarterback, and nobody blocks him. Nobody gets him, and so he crashes right into Joe Theismann, the star quarterback for the tackle, and when he tackles him, his leg is crushed. If you haven't seen the video, don't watch it. It is historically gruesome. It is well known to be a, a career-ending injury for Joe Theismann. And the game immediately changed because every other team in the game, they never wanted to see that happen to their quarterback. And so what happened was from that point on, now the left tackle on offense, the person who's supposed to block that person on defense, or, or that person on, yeah, on defense, their position now became suddenly the most important position on the team. In fact, today, the left tackle is the highest paid person on the team besides the quarterback, sometimes more than the quarterback. But I bet if we gave a poll, none of you could name the left tackle of any team on a football team. Maybe a few of you. If you're a big fan, you might know who the left tackle is. But these people go unnoticed and unnamed because all they do is one thing. They block the defenders. Their, their job is to block the blind side of the quarterback so that no threats coming in can destroy the offense. They've got one job, to block the threats. Because if that threat comes in, if that threat is able to stop the offense, it will ruin the entire team's ability to function. Right? If they fail in their job, everybody else fails. It becomes a leadership crisis. And that, that's, that's how teams work, right? Teams work where they rise and fall on good leadership. There, there are leaders on a team that if they do well, everyone else is able to do well. And if they do poorly, everyone else is likely going to do poorly. I mean, we understand this intuitively, right, in all kinds of life, in, in all kinds of areas of our life. Think about your workplace, right? If your supervisor, if they don't do their job, Probably everybody else below them is going to suffer, right? That they might even fail in their job because the person above them is not doing their job. Or if you think about the school that you went to, or maybe you work at a school now or you go to school now, if the administration of the school doesn't do their job well, the teachers and the faculty and, and the students are going to struggle to do their job. Or, or maybe you think about... Um, some other area in your life. Maybe it's your apartment complex, right? The people who own your apartment complex, if they don't do their job to keep up the apartment complex and, and make it uh, to where it's a livable situation and they take care of things and they fix things, then everyone who lives there is going to suffer. Right? We, we understand this in all of life, and it's the same thing in the church. The church rises and falls on good leadership. As the leaders go in the church, so the church goes. And so there's this, this principle in life that, that good leadership creates good environments. And, and so in this season of our church, we are, like I said earlier, we are nominating new leaders. And new leaders in our church mean new elders and deacons and deaconesses. 
And so what, what that means, if you're new to our church, you're, you're asking maybe what, what does that mean to be a leader in a church and how does that work? Well, over the next six weeks, over the next six weeks, if you're a member of this church, you're going to get a letter in the mail from our church saying, here's what it means to nominate somebody. Here's how the process works. Here's what you should be looking for. And you'll be able to nominate people in our church who are members of the church to serve in those roles. And so what, what it means is over this next six weeks, we're going to have nominations, and then we're going to meet with those people, we're going to give them training, we're going to examine them, and then we're going to ordain or commission them. But that whole process takes five to six months. It's, it's a very involved commitment and training, and, and we want to make sure our leaders are well-equipped for the work that they're being called to. But that is the season we're going into right now. And so I wanted to pause for a minute and ask and, and look at the scriptures and say, what, what kind of leaders are we looking for? Like before you start doing nominations and, and look around and see who are, who are leading in these ways already, what should we be looking for and why are we even in need of leaders? And so we're going to look at this passage briefly this morning where Paul writes this letter to his spiritual son, Timothy. And if you're familiar with the Bible, you've maybe read uh, some of these letters that Paul is passing to the people that he, uh, at one point, was, was leading. And now he's moved on to another place, and he set up leadership. And so he left behind Timothy as the leader of the church in Ephesus. And he's writing to Timothy to say, now that you're the pastor of this church, you need to set up leaders around you. You need to set up these leaders who can help lead the church and, and help the church to thrive. And so as he's writing to Timothy, he tells Timothy, these are the things you should be looking for. These are the ways that you can identify who the leaders are in the local church. And so that's what I want to look at today. What do leaders look like in the church? What do they look like? And so first, what we want to look at is gospel character. If you're taking notes this morning, this is the first point, gospel Character. Look at verses 2 and 7, because they kind of bracket this section on elders. Look at what he says. He says, Therefore an overseer must be above reproach. And then down to verse 7, he says, Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Now listen, pause there for a second. Paul is using these terms, pastor and overseer and elder, interchangeably. So they're all different ways of describing the work of an elder with different titles and different nuances, but, but it's all describing the same role. And so here he calls them overseers. And he uses these, these uh, verses to kind of bracket what he's talking about and what he's looking for. And, and it all kind of summarizes by this one phrase that he says, above reproach. Above reproach. That's what you're looking for, Timothy. You're looking for someone above reproach. Now, what does that mean? Right? Does that mean you're looking for sinless people? Does that mean you're looking for perfect people? Absolutely not, right? There, let's just say that off the bat. There are no sinless people in this church. There are no sinless people in the, any churches you've ever been to, right? If you're looking for that person, you're going to keep looking. Well, what he means by above reproach is that they are, uh, they're without accusation. Does that make sense? Well, what, what he's saying is if, if, if you were to go to this person, they're the type of person who is known for good character and that people would, would be very unlikely to bring an accusation against them. 
It's really a description of someone who has a good reputation, someone who has a reputation of solid character, someone who's known as as a person who is deep in their faith. And and notice what Paul says. He, He doesn't just say they're known in the church that way, right? He's not saying that they're really good on Sundays, but then Monday through Saturday, they're terrible heathens. He says that they need to be well known throughout the other people, the outsiders, the rest of the community, that they have a good reputation. He says that they may not bring disgrace. Right? He's saying inward, they need to have a good reputation, and outward. Now, What does that look like? He gives 12 common traits of good character, if you want to call it that. And now these, he kind of gives a list, and and I would describe this list as a representative list. In other words, it's not necessarily requirements, because think about this. Paul himself and Timothy both wouldn't be able to even meet the requirement of a husband of one wife, because they're both single men. So these requirements are not to say, check the box. You have to have these things. What what Paul is describing is representative of the kind of person you should be looking for as you identify an elder. And so he gives this list that's a representative list. He says they're faithful to their spouse. They have good judgment. They're self-controlled. They're welcoming to outsiders. They're able to teach the Bible. They're gentle in all things. They're not looking for an argument. They, They don't idolize money. They lead their family with integrity. They have some years behind them in their discipleship to Jesus, right? This is the type of person, Timothy, you're looking for. That type of person. And then he says the same thing about the deacons. He says, he summarizes the deacon qualifications in verse 8. He says, deacons likewise must be dignified. Now, when you hear that word, you might think like someone who's, who's got a top hat and a cane or something. I don't know. Like it sounds like someone who's wealthy and prestigious and status. That, that's not what the word means to be dignified. What the word means there is, is they have, uh, they're, they're in a position of respect. Like you, you look to them and you respect them and, and you look up to them. And, and so they're, they're in this position that, again, just like the elder being above reproach, that they're somebody with, with depth and character. And then he goes on, just like the elders, to give a representative list. What, what, what kind of person is, is dignified, right? And he starts to give these traits. And, and the traits, you could trace all of them back to the elders. It's basically the same list as what he talked about with the elders, except one be able to teach, right? And so you start to see a distinguishing here between the elders and the deacons. The the elders have to be able to teach, and the deacons are not necessarily, uh, that's not a requirement. And so you start to see a difference, and we'll come back to that in a minute. But notice the emphasis in both. Notice the emphasis is on character. It's on character. Paul never gives a job description. He gives a character description. He doesn't say this is what the person does. I mean, he kind of hints at it. We'll get to that in a minute. But all he says is this is who they are. This is what they they are in their being. And so what Paul is describing here is somebody who in their very being, this, this is what they do, or this is who they are before what they do. And so here's the principle in church leadership. Character beats competency every day. Every single day, character beats competency. What are you looking for? We're looking for people 
of character. Now, we need to pause and address an important detail in verse 11, okay? So follow me, because this is going to be kind of a, a longer uh, side, side trail here. But, but the ESV translates in verse 11, it says, Their wives, likewise, must be dignified. Now, you might have noticed when I, when I read the, the text earlier that uh, I, I would disagree with that, with that translation, and here's why. So the ESV, and like many others, they, they look at this translation, and, and it's really, in the Greek, it's more ambiguous. It's literally the women, likewise. And so they make an interpretation judgment there, and, and they link the, the women to the deacons. Because the question is, who, who are the women that he's talking about? Right? Who, who are the women he's referring to? And so some people interpret it as the women he's referring to are the wives of the deacons. But what I would say is that that's not as helpful and, and not as, as accurate in the context because what, what we're seeing in the context is we're seeing a shift in the grammar. We're actually seeing a shift that, that if you go back and you look at it, you see in verse 8, he says, deacons likewise must. And then he introduces the same thing here. He says, the women likewise must. And so he's starting another section. And what we're, what we're seeing is what most Bible scholars believe is actually a reference to deaconesses. And here's what that means. Uh, what what you've got to kind of go back and, and look at the languages is basically uh, there was no uh, feminine form of the word for deacon at that time. The, the feminine form of diakonos, the Greek word, didn't exist until the 4th century at the Council of Nicaea. And so in this time, in the Greek language, it was only a male form, which makes sense of why in, in Romans chapter 16, verse 1, Phoebe was actually called a deacon. And here's a woman who's being called a deacon in the male form, diakonos. That's the title given to her. Because there was no female, there was no feminine form of the Greek word at that time. And so what would often happen in the early church is what they would refer to the women who served in this role, they would refer to them as either deacons or the women deacons. Until later on, they were called deaconesses. And so what we're seeing here is as Paul is describing these women, most Bible scholars think that he's just referring to the women who served alongside the deacons. Uh, because it's in the same list, it gives a very similar requirement. And what's strange is, why would Paul have different requirements for the deacons' wives and not for the elders' wives? Right? There, there, there's no mention of the elders' wives if that's the interpretation you go with. And so what makes more sense in the context is you have elders, deacons, and deaconesses. Now, we also see throughout the rest of the New Testament, we see uh, all kinds of women who are doing the work of deacons. The widows in 1 Timothy 5 were dedicated to helping the suffering and the poor. Tabitha in Acts chapter 9 was noted for her work among the poor. All throughout the Gospels, you see women serving alongside the disciples and doing the work of the diaconate. And so you see in, in the New Testament this trend of women serving in this way, but not just in the New Testament, all throughout church history. The office of deaconess has been affirmed and celebrated for centuries and centuries. Even in our own Presbyterian history, we see deaconesses uh, celebrated and affirmed and people by you know, incredible status in the Presbyterian church. People like John Calvin, B.B. Warfield, James Montgomery Boyce, Tim Keller. These people who are not small folks in the movement of the Presbyterian church, all in their own way affirmed deaconesses in various Forms. And so, just to give you a small Presbyterian history, and then we'll come back in a moment. But in 1982, 
1982, before that Monday night football game, 1982, a, a Presbyterian body by the name of the Reformed Presbyterian Church Evangelical Synod, the RPCES, if you want to uh, give an acronym there, they joined with the PCA, our denomination, the Presbyterian Church in America, and we call it joining and receiving in our history. And so this large denomination joined with our denomination, but for a long time, decades, they had already had deaconesses in their in their church tradition. And so when they joined together with us, now the PCA, our denomination, had to figure out what do we do with the deaconesses in their denomination, and the decision was to allow them to remain. And so since 1982, the PCA has had deaconesses. And it's just been mostly in the churches who were a part of that denomination, but now over time it has spread to become a common practice in the PCA, especially in northern churches where that denomination was rooted. And so what we see is these uh, commissioned deaconesses are not only in church history, not only in the New Testament, but they're in our own denomination. So what does this mean for our church? What does this mean for our church? Well, here it is. From now on, our church and our elders have decided we are going to be nominating and training and commissioning deaconesses. And so we are very excited about this uh, transition. In one way, it is a major change. In other ways, it's, it's a very small change because women in our church have already been doing this work, right? The women in our church have already been doing the work of deaconesses, but they haven't been given the title and the honor. And so what we are asking and what we're pursuing is to say, how can we in a biblical way give honor to this role in our church and, and make sure that the women in our church are getting the same training and the same positions that we can have together. But notice what Paul says here. When he transitions from the elder to the deacon to the deaconess, all of these positions, what he's saying is character is the most valuable thing. He says it again with the deaconesses. He says they must be dignified, same word, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Character, right? Character, character, character. That, that's what he's saying we want to look for as we're trying to identify leaders. Why character? Well, because biblical leadership, right, the work of leadership is as much about being as it is about doing. It, it, it's about who you are, giving away who you are to the people that you're ministering to. And so if there's a lack of character in your life, what you're going to give away is a lack of character. And so Paul is saying the first thing that you have to have is your own soul has to be whole. Your own soul. It doesn't have to be perfect. It doesn't have to be sinless. But you need to have such a depth in Jesus that you are connected to him as you go out and minister. And so that's what we're looking for. We, as you consider leaders, consider character. Consider character, right? Now let's look at the work because we need characters who also do the work. The, first, or the, the second point is gospel work. Look, look at verse 1 now, verse 1 and verse 13. Here's another bracket here that Paul is doing. Uh, verse 1 says this, The saying is trustworthy, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer or elder, he desires a noble task. Now, verse 13, for those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves. Now, again, Paul here only hints, only hints at the actual work. His main concern is not what they do, it's who they are, but he still hints at it. He says that the elders need to have, uh, or, or they desire a, a good work or, or a noble task, and 
And then he says that the deacons can serve well, which implies that they can also serve poorly, right? And so he's saying the work does matter. It is good work. And there is a way that you can serve well rather than serving poorly. And so he's saying there is something to this, but he doesn't really tell us much about it. But later on in other passages of the Bible, we obviously learn more about what this work is. And so places like 2 Timothy chapter 4 show us what elders do. He says, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. And again, in 1 Peter 5, he says, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. So we see this picture all throughout the New Testament of of elders doing the work of shepherding. One of the most fascinating places you see really the distinction between the two is in Acts chapter 6. In Acts chapter 6, if you go back to the book of Acts, you see the early church as it's getting established. And you see the early church is growing beyond what they're capable of handling. Like it's just flourishing. People are coming to faith by the thousands. And, and so now the needs are rising to a point that, that they can't handle it. And so one day in Acts chapter 6, as they are doing what they called the daily distribution, which was the time where they gathered together and, and they helped with the people who were in need. They're distributing food and clothing and different things. All these people are gathered together, probably hundreds or thousands of people, and there's a complaint that rises up. And the complaint is from the Greek Christians who are complaining about the Jewish Christians because they say the Jewish Christians are getting favoritism. And so what you start to realize is here's this massive body of people who are from all nations, all languages that that came to Christ at Pentecost, and it looks beautiful, right? It looks like a, a mosaic of beautiful faces, but... It came with a lot of conflict. And so now they're starting to bite and fight and all this stuff's going on between them and and the needs are so much that people don't know what to do and where to go and how to get help. And and so now there's so much that the apostles are trying to figure out how do we deal with this? What are they going to do? And what's amazing to me is, first of all, they don't ignore the problem, right? It's easy in leadership to just say, I don't have time for that. You're, You're just a complainer. They, they don't do that. They don't dismiss them. They don't ignore them. But also, just as amazing, they don't absorb the problem. They don't say, oh, well, yeah, I've got about 30 minutes left in my week. I think I can handle a whole project. Like, I, I, I think I can take on everyone's needs and just pile it on me, pile it on me, because it's just as dangerous in leadership to take everything on yourself. They don't do either one of those. What do they do? They divide the work up. In God's wisdom, they say, let's, let's divide the work up. We will pray. That's what they do first. We will pray, and God will raise up people who can do this work. And so they divide up the work, and they say, we're going to preach and pray and, and, and deal with spiritual needs. And the people that God raises up, they're, they're going to serve the physical needs of this group. And so it becomes this, this model for New Testament leadership where now you have the work of the word and the work of the deed. And so over time, it develops into elder work and deacon and deaconess work to where you have the work of shepherding and the work of serving. And so in the New Testament church, this is how it functioned. There, there was this gospel work that was twofold. Both were absolutely essential, right? These two roles of shepherding and serving were essential for the church to be healthy and to be on mission. Because it was, it was always this twofold work. Elders were shepherding, deacons and deaconesses were serving. 
because you're always going to have needs. I mean, the, our church right now, we have so many spiritual needs that can't be ignored. Right now, every one of us in this room and every one of us who are not in this room that are a part of this church, that call this church their family, we're all in a battle against sin and suffering. We are all in a battle as we're dealing with our own hearts that are struggling and despairing and doubting and anxious and afraid. And now we're gossiping and we're angry and we're full of conceit and pride and all these things that are overwhelming in our life. Every single one of us has those needs. And this might be shocking to you, especially if you're new around here, you'll, you'll hear it soon. But every single person that this church is full of sinners Not like some church down the street that you left to come to this church, but this church right here that you're sitting in, everyone in here, we are full of sin. The people on this stage, myself, all of us, we are full of sin. And so those needs don't just go away. We need good shepherding. We we need elders who shepherd. Elders are not board members or trustees that sit in a room and make decisions disconnected from life. That is not what elders do, right? They're shepherds with the sheep. They smell like sheep. They know the sheep. They're present with the sheep. In other words, elder work is is people work primarily. They labor for the spiritual maturity of our people. They teach the scriptures. They intercede on our behalf. They seek God's vision for our church. They walk with couples who are struggling. They, they walk with people who are, or who are in, in conflict with one another. They're trying to figure out how do we reconcile, right? This is the work of elders, whether they have a title or not. It's the work of elders. We need shepherds. But we also have a lot of physical needs in our church. Not just spiritual needs, right? Our city is, is a city in, in physical danger a lot of times. P- people are, are, are constantly on the brink of homelessness or, or despair, or people are one medical bill away from a financial crisis. There's people who are splitting up in their marriages and creating all kinds of difficulties. There's people who have emotional needs and, and physical needs, people who are who are set apart because of sicknesses and and kind of ostracized from the community. All these needs that are physical come up, and we need people who can help. We need people who can move towards those physical needs, right? People who are are moving towards the direction of serving, and so we need deacons and deaconesses who serve. I mean, just like elders, the, the, the deacon work is people work. The primary difference is focus. It's saying one, one group is going to primarily focus on spiritual needs and the other group is primarily going to focus on physical needs, but the work overlaps quite a bit. Because anytime you have physical needs, all of a sudden you have spiritual needs. And anytime you have spiritual needs, there is often physical needs. And so the elders and deacons and deaconesses work together on those things to, to shepherd and care and serve our people. One person is called the deacons or the diaconate, the, the shock absorbers of the church. They're there to absorb the shock of suffering. When, when you lose a loved one, when, when you are going through a hard divorce, when, when you've lost your, your job and you don't know how you're going to pay your next bill, these kinds of things that happen to all of us in life, we need people who are willing to come alongside and serve, Right? But more than gospel leadership, 
We need the gospel mystery. And this is the last point, and I'll close. Gospel mystery. Look, look down at verse 16 now. We didn't read this part earlier, but uh, this is the end of the chapter. Paul closes this way. He says, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, and believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Now, what's beautiful here is Paul is describing, previously, he's describing the godliness of leadership, right? This is what it looks like to be a godly leader. And he gives this incredible, beautiful picture. But now he turns his, his gaze and he says, but this is the godliness. This, this is the mystery of godliness. And, and it's Paul's shorthand for talking about the mystery of the gospel, or as he said earlier in the chapter, the mystery of the faith. This is the good news of the gospel that, that God would come in the person and work of Jesus Christ and he would do what he's been promising he would do. And so Paul quotes this incredible uh, passage here, which most people think is, is a hymn of the old church here. And that's why in your Bible it probably is in a poetic form. But, but it's this song that, that emphasizes Jesus' humiliation and his exaltation. Right? It's, it's giving us the shape of the gospel. The gospel shape is always downward and then upward. It's always Jesus suffering and then glorified. It's always us entering into the fellowship of his sufferings and the rejoicing of his resurrection. It's, it's this gospel shape that he says is the mystery of godliness. And so the mystery of the gospel is that God himself, listen, God himself would become a shepherd servant. God himself would become the true and better elder and deacon. This is who he is. And so we see God do this in John chapter 13, right? It's the night that many of us would be familiar with as the Last Supper. And the question has been ringing in the disciples' ear, who is this man? Right? They've been watching Jesus for years now. They've been watching him heal people. They've been watching him teach with authority. They've been watching him love people unconditionally. They've been watching him speak truth to power. They've been watching him calm storms and feed thousands. They've been watching him do all these things. And the question keeps coming up, who is Jesus? And in the middle of this meal where they're celebrating the Passover meal, Jesus stands up from his honored position at the table and as he rises up from the table, he walks over to the corner of the room where there's a basin of water and there's a towel. And the towel was used by the household servants. And, and uh, he walks over to the basin. He, he starts to unclothe himself. He, he takes off his outer garments and then he wraps the servant's uh, towel around his waist. And he picks up the bowl and he walks back over to the disciples. He gets down on his hands and knees and he starts to wash their feet. Wash their feet. He starts to wash all the dust and the dirt and the grime and the donkey droppings and everything that was on their feet as they made their way into the house. This was the job that the, the household servant was supposed to do. This was a job that was on the lowest of the low of the totem pole. In fact, it was a job that was illegal for Jewish people to do because it was so disgraceful. And here's Jesus with the towel around his waist, washing their feet. Everyone is speechless. They don't even know how to respond. And of course, everyone's speechless, and that gives Peter the opportunity to speak. Right? You know Peter. And Peter speaks when everyone else is silent, and he says, Lord, do you wash my feet? 
He says, you'll, you'll never wash my feet. In other words, you, you're not some servant. You're, you're not some person that's at the bottom of the total pool. You're the Messiah. My Messiah is not going to wash my feet. Get up off the ground, Jesus. You're supposed to be better than this. You're the leader. You're the king of kings. You're the Lord of lords. And Jesus gently rebukes him. In John 13, 8, he says, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Jesus is saying, Peter, this isn't about your feet. This is about your soul. This is about your life, your eternal life. Peter, if I don't wash you, you'll never get clean. And of course what Peter says, well then wash me from head to toe. Wash me from head to toe. Because he, he got it at that point that Jesus as the Messiah didn't come to rule and reign on a throne. He came to come down to the bottom to save us. See, Jesus saves us from the low place. Jesus is the true and better deacon who stoops down to the lowest place to serve. He leaves heaven to come serve at the table of sinful humanity. He gets on his hands and knees to wash us. He befriends the needy and the broken and the outcasts and the marginalized. But he's also the true and better elder. He's the true and better elder who lays down his life. As Jesus says in John 10, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He not only serves us, he dies for us. You can't get lower than a cross. You can't get lower than a cross. On the cross, he washed our sins with his own blood. On the cross, his perfect life, above any reproach, becomes our life. On the cross, his servant leadership saves his enemies. On the cross, his mysterious love is made known forever. This is Jesus' love. This is the gospel mystery of his leadership in us. And so as we begin nominations, I want us to be prayerful. Right, if you're a member of our church and you're, you're going to start praying about who you want to nominate to these positions, I want you to pray that God would lead you and, and start praying about who's already in that role in our church. Like who is doing the work of an elder or a deacon and deaconess? Who, who is doing that work already without a title? Without, without the, the position, but they're already doing that work. Who, who can I nominate that God is calling to, to lead in that place? And, and if you get nominated, don't say no right away. Let, let this be a season of prayer. Let, let, let the Spirit lead you and say, maybe I should consider this. And, and there's always three people to consider in any kind of calling. It's always yourself, God, and your community. Right? You need to let God in on that decision, but let other people in on that decision. Ask them, do you see me in this role? Do you think I'd be good? Do you think I'm ready for this? Maybe, maybe one day, but maybe not right now. I don't, I don't know, but let that be a conversation with the people who are in your life who can speak into your life and can pray. But I think as we pray and as we seek God together, I'm excited to see what he's going to do. The people he will raise up in our congregation to help shepherd and serve our folks. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that, as we sang earlier, your word put on flesh. Your word came to us in the person and work of Jesus. And, and you didn't stay far away and far above, but you modeled for us what leadership looks like is to come close, to serve, to shepherd, to lay down our life. 
And so, Father, I pray for the men and women in our church who are going to, over these next few weeks, pray and seek your leading, and also those who may consider their own calling to these positions. May your Holy Spirit guide us. May your Holy Spirit give us wisdom. May you help us to discern well and to have courage, courage to lead, courage to have conversations, even the courage to pray. May you give us an open, open life and an open spirit in those things, that we might bring you glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand to our feet.